This is The Point on CAI. I'm Steve Junker. It is Friday, March 1st. This is our local news roundup. We'll be discussing the week's top stories with reporters and editors from around the region. Today on the program, we'll be hearing from CAI's Jeanette Barnes and Eve Zukoff. We'll speak with Thomas Humphrey of the Vineyard Gazette and Tim Wood of the Cape Cod Chronicle. We'll hear from Sam Pollock of the new of the Provincetown Independent and Josh Balling of the Nantucket Inquirer and Mirror. CAI's Patrick Flannery. We'll speak with our State House reporter Katie Lannon, and we'll speak with Colin Hogan from the New Bedford Light. Now to some of the news around the Cape, the coast, and the islands. Potential air pollution from the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station is in the spotlight this week as the state pushes the owner of the plant for data. And two offshore wind farms with ties to Cape Cod are getting close to federal approval. CAI's Jeanette Barnes is here to talk about both those stories. Hi, Jeanette. Hi, Jeanette. We got you in there? Yep. Great to be here. (laughs) Okay. Uh, First, let's talk about the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station. The Department of Environmental Protection has made a written request to Holtec, that's the plant's current owner, to calculate possible air emissions from the nuclear plant, even though the reactor was shut down five years ago. Talk about what's in this letter and why this is happening now. Sure. So this is uh, putting into uh, into writing a request from the Department of Environmental Protection um, that we first reported in January uh, when Seth Pickering, who is a deputy regional director there, um, talked about it at a public meeting, he was saying that um, the state is requesting that um, Holtec provide more information about possible air emissions from the plant. Um, and in this letter, um, he says he's writing specifically in light of Holtec's proposal to extend the decommissioning process by eight years overall, uh, which would result in more evaporation, of course, if nothing else is done with the contaminated water in the meantime. Um, so, again, they're asking um, Holtec to submit calculations that show what would the potential emissions of air pollution be um, from specific pollutants from that evaporation of what is called process water, um, which means that uh, it is water that's in the nuclear reactor system, the spent fuel pool, and any other water that kind of circulates through that whole nuclear process there in the building. Um, the state does know a fair amount of what is in the water uh, because it conducted its own water testing at Pilgrim back in April. Um, <clears throat> so the state is specifying that uh, the data should include everything that they found in April, plus anything else that's occurred since then. We do know that um, the evapor- the amount of evaporation at Pilgrim has increased, and that's um, that's kind of why it's it's a hot topic right now because the um, Holtec put underwater heaters into the some of that wa- that water system, um, and the federal government, um, upon their inspection, said that will cause more evaporation and probably a slight increase in radioactive tritium passing out through that ventilation system. So this contaminated water that has that is on the site there at Holtec, more than a million gallons, is right now being evaporated into the air. Quite a bit of this water has already evaporated from Pilgrim in the last year, right? Yes. Uh, based on numbers that Holtec provided, uh, 150,000 gallons of process water evaporated over a nine-month period last year, 
um, which means really that over the longer timeline they're now talking about for the decommissioning, um, the, the full amount of water that they have there could easily be gone before the decommissioning is ever done. And uh, people on kind of both sides of this debate about, um, you know, whether it's okay to discharge the water into Cape Cod Bay, both of those sides have some concern about um, the evaporation, because even Holtec has said that um, human exposure to tritium is likely to be higher with evaporation compared to discharging the water. Now, with this letter that the state is writing to Holtec asking for details about what's being evaporated there, the state is relying on Holtec to self-report any potential air emissions, right? Yes. So they're asking for Holtec to do its own calculations. Um, part of that is probably because this is intended to be predictive, um, because so it needs to take into account how often the heaters would be operating at what temperature and things like that. But, um, you know, the state should have a really good idea of what some of those calculations should be, what those pollution levels should be, because they did do that previous water testing. So, you know, it's not like Holtec can completely invent those numbers, but you're right. They are, uh, it is a self-reporting thing at this point. And how about Holtec? Have they responded to this letter yet? Well, the company spokesman was willing to email me some comments this week, um, but as of that time, they had not rep actually replied to the state. He said, uh, this is uh, Patrick O'Brien, the spokesman for Holtec. He said they were still formulating a response to the state. Um, in his comments to me, what he said is that Pilgrim has water filters in the system. Uh, and they do monitor the air emissions continuously, he said. But as we've reported before, um, after speaking with um, a number of people, including Ken Bissler, who's a marine radiochemist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, um, water treatment and filtration will not remove 100% of contaminants. Um, Holtec's response in the past to those kinds of comments is that um, there are government limits on discharges and that it's following those limits. Assuming that Holtec supplies those calculations the state is looking for, what happens next here? Uh, well, the letter says that, uh, the letter from the state says that if, um, if these changes to the plant that have caused this evaporation result in any one contaminant reaching one ton of emissions per year, uh, then it triggers a certain type of state application process um, called a limited plan application. One ton, of course, sounds like a lot, and I'm just starting to learn um, about that process. One thing we really don't know yet is um, how much ability the state would have to deny some kind of application without getting sued over it. Um, we, we are actually still waiting to see if um, the DEP is ever going to issue a final determination on the water issue on Holtec's application for a modification of its water discharge permit. Um, and in that case, the wait has been so long uh, that uh, people are suggesting that maybe a strategic move to not issue a final one rather than just a procedural issue of some kind. Mm. Uh, let's turn to offshore wind. You reported some news this week about two wind farms that are still hoping to land cables in Barnstable. Tell us what happened. Yes. Uh, so this is about Commonwealth Wind and Park City Wind. Um, they have completed now their federal environmental review. Uh, that means the public comment process for that is done. 
uh, and they've received this environmental report. It's almost 600 pages, called a final environmental impact statement. Um, and it was done jointly for both of these wind farms, Commonwealth and Park City Wind, um, under one separate name that covers them both, New England Wind. Um, and they're both owned by Avangrid. So makes sense. They would kind of uh, combine those, those procedures. Um, but this is not a a final approval, actually, from, from the federal government. There are still two significant steps to go. Um, but it's interesting, I think, because at this point where we are today with these two wind farms, Commonwealth and Park City Wind, it only took Vineyard Wind four additional months to get their full approval. Um, so we could be looking at that, a similar kind of timeline here as well, perhaps. Um, and uh, these, again, these are the two wind farms that are uh, hoping to land cables also in Barnstable. Craigville Beach is one location and Dowses Beach. Um, that discussion with the town, of course, is still ongoing. But this um, this new report is part of the federal process, which is separate. So these two wind farms, Commonwealth and Park City, they no longer have contracts to sell the power that they would generate. What's happening with that? You're right. Uh, both of them backed out of their contracts because of cost increases, um, but Avangrid is expected to bid again in the latest solicitation, which is happening right now. Um, and certainly both of those wind farms would probably be in a, a prime position to be part of that bidding because they're so far along um, toward their federal approval. I mean, that's years ahead of um, anyone who proposes a brand new project that hasn't started the federal process. Um so yeah, that's going to be interesting. This is also, again, this is the um, the time when the Healy administration has decided to allow joint bids. Actually, the Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut have all decided to kind of work together on this bidding process. So I think mm -hmm. um, large wind farms or combinations of farms like these two um, could be part of that whole multi-state process. It's interesting. So we have just about a minute left here, but tell us more about this environmental impact statement. What is in that document? Well, it, in, it evaluates the environmental effects of several different alternatives for the wind farms, um, including a no-build alternative, a couple of others, and then what they call the preferred alternative. Um, and one big thing that folks around here frequently look for is how the project would um, affect marine mammals, um, and especially North Atlantic right whales, which, of course, are critically endangered. Um, in one of the charts in these reports, I have to say it is it can be easy to misread it if you're not reading the whole thing, because um, it shows the negative effect on whales as major. And that is because that analysis shows what the wind farm would do in combination with all current activity happening in the ocean. And that current activity includes the biggest threats to right whales, which are vessel strikes and entanglement. Um, so when you take those things out, there is another there is another section in the chart. When you take those things out, then it says the effect on whales is minor. Hmm. That is CAI's Jeanette Barnes, who's tracking all of this for us. Jeanette, thank you. Thank you, Steve. 
It is the time of year when endangered North Atlantic right whales come to Massachusetts waters in high numbers, especially for such a small population. CAI's Eve Zirkoff has details on what researchers are seeing. She joins us now. Hi, Eve. Hi, Steve. So the whales are here. Yes. Tell us what the whale spotters have seen in the last few weeks. Yes. So the New England Aquarium recently spotted 31 right whales on a single day uh, across two groups, making their way through waters east of Nantucket and Cape Cod. One concern, they've been right in the middle of the shipping lanes. Um, Thankfully, no collisions were seen by the New England Aquarium team, but, you know, it's a concern. If anything, you know, what they saw, which is actually really cool, these researchers saw the whales trying to eat. They love to eat these tiny copepods and other plankton, uh, which is a really amazing sight to see, actually, especially outside of Cape Cod Bay. Um, The team from the New England Aquarium has faced bad weather in the last couple of days, but actually possibly even right now, they're planning to get out in the plane and conduct another aerial survey south of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. So researchers follow these whales so closely, they know them as individuals. Mm. Were there any whales that they recognized as they were flying over? So they thought, ah, here's the the whales we know. Yeah, they they can recognize them from the plane. That's how well these researchers know these animals. And it helps. that there are 350 left. So it's not a huge pool. Um, They recognize one named Caterpillar, who is a 19-year-old right whale. They could see her right away because she has this huge scar from a vessel strike. As Jeanette said, this is a major threat to these whales or boat collision. She suffered it when she was just two years old. It's massive. I was just looking at pictures of it. It looks like um, propeller scars on her her stomach, kind of. Uh, Researchers fear, actually, that her scar could reopen and risk her survival if she became pregnant. So she is very easily recognizable if you are uh, that kind of expert. Uh, And there were several others, too, that have unique patterns or they're called callosities on the back of their heads, these big calluses that are totally unique to each individual right whale. Uh, And if you know how to ID them, you do it quickly. And and that's what happened for these researchers. Now, usually this time of year when we talk about right whales, we're talking about them gathering in Cape Cod Bay. But these whales that you're talking about, the 31 whales that were seen were in a different location, in the Great South Channel. Explain that. Why is that and where is that? I yeah, guess. yeah. Well, it's it's hard to know. It's outside Cape Cod Bay, and it's hard to know exactly why they were there. I mean, there are years where we see, like, the vast majority of the population in Cape Cod Bay this time of year, and right now they're a little more spread out, which is unusual. We're kind of... Researchers are telling me there's something's a little weird this year so far, what it seems like. They are probably following their food. That's what we know about animals generally is that there's like the foraging theory. And, um, you know, with right whales, it's no different. Um, specifically, the larger group within that 31, they were actually broken up into two little two separate groups. The bigger of the two had definitely been following their prey. But to be clear, you know, there are also lots of whales in Cape Cod Bay. The Center for Coastal Studies saw about 50 of them on Sunday. So it seems like they're they are just kind of spreading out in local waters. So uh, Great South Channel is kind of between Nantucket and George's Bank there. Um, Are there more risks to them there in Great South Channel than when they're in Cape Cod Bay at this time of year? Yeah, there are currently no mandatory speed restrictions uh, in the Great South Channel for for boats. So when there are sightings or when there's like aggregations of right whales that pop up, there can be, and this happened thankfully, uh, a, a dynamic management area that gets established. It's basically voluntary 
a voluntary speed reduction zone where boats are urged to go less than 10 knots. They're not required to, so right whale experts are are not thrilled that this is the system. Um, And so it plays into these concerns that we have feeding whales. That also brings them up to the surface. And all these fast-moving boats, it's concerning at the moment. And, you know, what's really interesting about this is that over the last few years, we've known that climate change has had an impact on the prey of right whales in terms of where they're going, where they're feeding in certain areas. Uh, And it's made their timing and location a little bit more unpredictable than it's been been in the past. And this year, with the Great, Great South Channel aggregation, it could be an example of that, which is so interesting. I mean, we only started knowing that Climate change seemed to be really affecting right whales and their food in 2016 uh, up in Canada. So this could mm. be another really interesting research opportunity um, and, and big question, I, I think. And in part, it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning. They're here feeding, mm. They it's believed, and they're feeding on copepods. And where the their feed is is changing in part because of climate change, they think. Maybe. Researchers think. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> it's, it's There's a big such puzzle. a mystery, yeah. That is CAI's Eve Zukov. Eve, thank you. Thank you. This is the News Roundup on The Point. I'm Steve Junker. We are going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll speak with Thomas Humphrey of the Vineyard Gazette. Stay with us. This is the News Roundup on The Point. We're talking about the top local stories of the week with reporters and editors from around the region. I'm Steve Junker. Know somebody looking for a summer rental? We've got a cozy spot for you on Martha's Vineyard. And just two little things. You have to rent it for four weeks. And the price? One million dollars. Thomas Humphrey of the Vineyard Gazette has this story and joins us. Hi, Thomas. Good morning. A million dollar summer rental. Uh, Maybe it was inevitable. Uh, You do a great job getting behind the headline with your piece. So start off with some of the facts for us. Where's the house and really what's this all about? Yeah, so it's a pretty prominent property right on the shores of Nashaquitza Pond in Chilmark. And it's kind of it's got an incredible laundry list of amenities. It's got, you know, two guest houses, private movie theater, indoor heated pool, two basketball courts, 11 bedrooms, 13 bathrooms, uh, and access to the three boats at the house's property, uh, Deepwater Harbor. Uh, that that's a lot, but for that price, you'd expect a lot, I guess. Uh, this house has been in the news for a while now. The house itself, that when it built, actually caused a, a large conversation, a large conversation to really start happening in the community. Walk us back a little bit and tell us about that. Sure. Back in uh, 2012, when businessman Adam Zoya, who owns the house, decided to expand it. Um, it caused a pretty big stir in town, in part because it was on such a pretty visible area right on the waterfront. And that expansion and the controversy that surrounded it inspired um, voters in Chilmark and ultimately later in West Pittsburgh to enact a so-called big house bylaw, which now limits the square footage of houses that can be built in town. Uh- this was not the first time that a big house bylaw had been floated, but this time around, when this came around in 2012, 2013, it, it moved forward and the town passed that bylaw because of this particular house. Yeah, I think, you know, it, obviously big houses had been built in Chilmark for a long time, but the visibility and I think um, people had kind of seen this as a, um, a, a symbol of kind of the changing character in the town, the the change of kind of Chilmark's old ways, and wanted to kind of stick a stake in the ground. 
This particular rental, of course, is catching a lot of attention because of the size of it. But you reached out to a number of folks on the island there to kind of get a sense of what this indicates in the bigger picture of what's happening there. And there's some very strong feelings about how things are changing. Yeah, I think the impression is that the the kind of state of the um, summer seasonal community is a little bit different than they used to be. People reminisce about um, kind of the days when summer renters really became part of the fabric of the community of the island year-round, and summer seasonal residents mingled and, and came to know one another. And the impression now is that that doesn't happen quite as much. And... As I guess I'm kind of curious about this the big house bylaw that was passed that's intended to limit the size of houses that are built there in Chilmark. Does it feel like it's working? Have people had a chance to assess how it's been working in the last 10 years? Yeah, actually one stipulation in the bylaw was that the town zoning board and planning board have to do a review every two years. And they have found a substantial uh, 40% reduction in the average size of new houses in Chilmark. Uh, in 2015, for instance, they measured the average size had gone from a pre-bylaw uh, 4,360 square feet down to just 2,500 square feet. In this particular house, which is, uh, what do we know about why it's on the market now? One would think if you have a house of that, you know, that's that big and significant, you're not really looking to rent it. Right. That's been kind of the the general state of most big um, most big kind of mansion estates on Martha's Vineyard. But it seems, according to the realtor I spoke to, it's just a scheduling issue. The family's not going to be here until August, and they wanted an opportunity to to rent it out before then. Uh, and the town actually is supposed to get some money, some percentage of rentals, short-term rentals anyway. Is is this fall under that kind of uh, picture? Yeah, it just barely falls under the category. The house can be rented for any four-week period. That puts it at 28 days, which is just under the minimum. And so Chilmark currently has the short-term rental tax set at 4%. So each four-week period that this house is rented is going to net the town uh, $40,000. Thomas Humphrey of the Vineyard Gazette, where you can find the story with some pictures of the house as well from the from aerial views. Thomas, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. When the town of Harwich long ago in the year 2000 built its community center, it installed plumbing for a potential swimming pool. Just about a quarter of a century later, there's a movement to build that pool at last. Tim Wood of the Cape Cod Chronicle joins us with this story. Hi, Tim. Hi, Steve. Tim, this comes out of a petition article for Spring Town Meeting, and the plan may involve at least one neighboring town. Tell us what's going on. Sure. Um, Resident Patrick Otten submitted this petition for the May Annual Town Meeting. Uh, It's basically a non-binding resolution asking for um, voters' sentiment on whether or not the town should pursue construction of an Olympic-sized swimming pool at the uh, community center. Uh, The non-binding question, it's not seeking any money. It's only kind of to get a sense of whether residents would be open to this. And um, one of the reasons I think he's, one of the reasons he said he's going forward now is that there has been some uh, sentiment expressed in Chatham next door uh, for possibly um, 
partnering with Harwich on this kind of endeavor. Um, Chatham had long discussed uh, a, a community swimming pool back, uh, oh, I think uh, 20 years ago when, when there was a debate about uh, Chatham building a community center. A swimming pool was part of one of the initial plans, but it was ultimately rejected because of the cost. Uh, and more recently, there was a, a bit of a movement here in town to uh, see if uh, the town could uh, purchase the uh, former Chatham Health and Swim Club, which had closed during the pandemic and, and never reopened um, to mm. take advantage of the pool that's there. That was rejected as well as being too expensive and not really meeting the needs of, of the community. Uh, but um, um, a resident uh, named Roz Coleman brought that matter up again at a recent select board meeting. And she said, uh, you know, if Chatham worked with Harwich, it would be, um, you know, more economical for each of the communities. There would be benefits for, for both of the communities. Uh, and, and this is something that Patrick Otten also uh, um, uh, emphasized in his petition, the, the, the you know, ability to, to, to people to swim year round health and the health and well-being of residents. And he said it could also be a moneymaker for the town. Um, they would need to build an additional structure for a pool like this, right? And then they'd, it would require a fair amount of staffing. Right. Well, uh, while the plumbing is sort of in place to, uh, to uh, uh, accommodate a pool, there isn't a space in the community center to do that. And yes, they, they, they apparently would have to build a separate building and whether or not that's feasible on the, the, the site of the community center on Oak street is uncertain. And what Patrick Otten is asking is um, that if voters endorse this, that the town put the uh, project on its uh, capital plan and, and investigate um, that. Now, the last time there was a, a, a movement sort of like this was in 2018 and the cost was put at $18 million. Uh, you know, that's not a small amount of money, and um, Harwich hasn't been approving, you know, very big projects lately, so that could be a factor too. But, you know, if Chatham or even Dennis um, decided to um, opt in to help, you know, that could that could be a good, uh, a good way to, to save money all around. And, you know, there's some debate about whether, you know, we're obviously we're surrounded by water here. Do we need, mm -hmm. uh, do we need a community swimming pool? Um, and uh, proponents uh, have countered that, you know, there, there's, you know, there's no public swimming pool on the lower or outer Cape. Um, uh, and there's, um, you know, three quarters of the year, most people aren't going to venture into, uh, into our nearby waters to go swimming. So, uh, so a pool could have benefits, you know, the schools could have a, a swim team. Now that now uh, Nauset has a swim team, but Monomoy doesn't have a swim team, Monomoy High School, because they really don't have access mm -hmm. to a pool. So uh, I think this is going to uh, spark some good discussion. There was a meeting the other night of the Harwich Rec Commission about, about this, and, and there seems to be some interest in the community. So as you say, this is non-binding. This is not like a commitment. It's more to to find out what kind of interest there is in the town. And this is going to be at the annual town meeting in the spring. When is that? Uh, it's May 6th um, at the, at, being held at, at the community center, ironically. Um, yeah, and there'll, and there'll be a couple of other uh, petition articles on the, uh, on the warrant, um, including... Um, uh, a fertilizer uh, ban, which uh, failed to pass last year, and also a, uh, a bylaw to uh, protect uh, trees from clear cutting um, of properties during development. That's been a, been an issue uh, in Harwich as well. It's Tim Wood of the Cape Cod Chronicle. Tim, thanks so much.
Thank you, Steve. Finding a year-round rental in Provincetown is already next to impossible. Now, as many as 13 people are being evicted from a modest and colorful corner of the town. Sam Pollock of the Provincetown Independent brings us this story and joins us now. Hi, Sam. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. We are talking about a multi-unit building called Nappyville after its one-time owner. Describe it for us. Yeah, um, so Nappyville is a is a um, you know a, a, a magical, if not a, a bit tattered, million uh, property uh, in Provincetown at twenty five to twenty seven Bradford Street, um, which uh, Nappyville Nappy uh, acquired in nineteen eighty six after it served um, you know as a cottage colony for many years, and before that it housed uh, actually a, a an avant-garde theater troupe known as the Barnstormers. So it's, it has a very historical significance to the town and has now served over 40 years as workforce housing um, and affordable housing for, um, you know, um, m- members of the town who are, are, are working the trades and uh, the service industry and hospitality. Um, yeah. So Nappy, who is well was well known in the town and owned a restaurant and, and was quite a... a a large presence had this property with his wife. Uh, he's no longer with us. He died, and uh, this was left in a charitable trust. So part of the question here is, is why this is happening, why these people are being displaced. Is that right? Right, yeah. So that is the question. And unfortunately, um, you know, uh, a part of the, the, the legal battle over control of the estate um, and these properties um, what it has remained uh, impounded uh, by the court. Um, so the the actual what the the actual charitable trust and the realty trust which uh, these properties are under, what they actually say and stipulate um, in terms of what you know uh, who are the beneficiaries, um, um, it, it remains unclear. You know, um, Nappy had had told Stormy Mayo, uh, the founder of Center for Coastal Studies, you know, he wanted. You know, much of his his estate and his resources to go to the Center for Coastal Studies, um, and now this is happening, and, and it's it's not quite clear, um, you know, w- what the motive is of of uh, you know um, the executor of Nappy's estate um, and conservator of Helen uh, Bernie McNeeny, um and, and why he's doing this now. Um, yeah. So. Uh... Nappy was had a real philanthropic kind of approach to to the town and trying to support, as you say, the Center for Coastal Studies, also the Provincetown Art Museum Association and Museum, and and leaving uh, his estate, the estate that he left behind was supposed to you know benefit these institutions. It's now under control of somebody who's managing the estate, but his uh, his wife is still alive, but is not involved in this. What do we know about that? Right. So, um, simultaneous to the to the court uh, battle over um, Nappy's estate um, and control over the estate, there was also a simultaneous battle um, over conservatorship of Helen um, uh, Nappy's widow. Um, and so, so what we we found is in 2018, Nappy was uh, di- uh, Helen was sorry was diagnosed with dementia, and in 2020, um, after Nappy's uh, death. She was declared unfit to manage his estate. She was named uh, personal representative of his will. Um, uh, she was declared un- unfit to uh, manage the estate um, by doctor. And so um, Nappy's longtime financial advisor, uh, Bernie McEnany, and his half-sister, Judy, uh, um, fought a 
for conservatorship over Helen, so so care for for Helen. And in October of 2021, um, uh, Bernie uh, Mappy's financial advisor won um, conservatorship over Helen, and so he she has been under the care of Bernie um, ever since. Mm. I guess, and with all of this going on, there's still this issue of the people who live in the property now uh, losing a place to live, and it's just not easy to to find a place to live in Provincetown. What's your what's your sense of what happens to them then? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the big question for a lot of these these folks. They they were told by um, you know the property managers Bernie and Lisa Meads that they have to be out by April 1st, so that's a month to find new housing. Um, and, and as many know, that's an impossible task to do, uh, let alone six months. It's, uh, it's near, it's, you know, virtually impossible to do in a month. Um, I, I spoke to, to six tenants of the property and they all said that they, they do not know um, where they'll end up um, after they move out of Nappyville. They haven't found any um, uh, options for them that kind of, uh, are even near or close to to the rent that they have now in Nappyville, um, so that's a huge question mark for them. Hmm. It's a complicated story. You laid out very well in the Provincetown Independent. Sam Pollock, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm Steve Junker. We're going to the break now. When we come back, we'll hear from Josh Balling of the Nantucket Inquirer and Mirror. Stay with us. This is the Local News Roundup on the Point. I'm Steve Junker. We are talking about the top local stories of the week with colleagues in the print and digital media. People who live near the airport on Nantucket are raising concerns about an expansion project that would remove woodland buffer and provide more parking for private jets. Josh Balling of the Nantucket Inquirer Mirror has the story. Hi, Josh. Good morning. This project seems like it's poised to go forward, and that's one thing that neighbors are pointing at as well, saying that they haven't had a proper opportunity to weigh in. Is that right? That is uh, one small uh, but very important part of the story, yes. Uh, they did get uh, something of a stay, I guess you could say. The uh, select board last week uh, requested and the airport commission agreed to hold a joint meeting on Monday uh, so the uh, neighbor's concerns can be heard and so the concerns of perhaps the Board of Health as well can be can be heard about this proposed project, which has been in the works for a couple of years, but uh, probably safe to say that it has a little bit flown below the radar. Uh, the neighbors uh, say that um, you know a project of this magnitude Magnitude, which uh, would increase uh, quite substantially the amount of asphalt and tarmac that uh, private planes can stage and park on after they land uh, at Nantucket Memorial Airport, uh, was not given much publicity. It was uh, publicized as it was required legally to do, but usually uh, down toward the bottom of uh, some of the um, airport commission agendas and also sort of during uh, the time of the pandemic when uh, not everything was uh, uh, going on municipally was at the top of, of, of people's mm. minds. But, um, you know, the Last Wednesday, the uh, number of neighbors came before the selectmen and really pleaded that uh, the project uh, be given another look, uh, be put on hold, perhaps. Uh, and uh, they say that uh, the project will remove a, a large chunk of woodland that acts as a buffer between their neighborhood and the airport. And uh, perhaps adding insult to injury, replace it with a 15-foot berm that will be filled with a soil contaminated with PFAS. Mm. Um, the project, again, is intended to increase the ramp and parking space for private aircraft, which have um, you know, grown exponentially at the airport in recent years, and the airport officials say is necessary, and also say that perhaps the only place 
uh, on the airport property that makes the most sense, even though uh, the neighbors have said there are other potential locations they'd rather see it. Uh, the exact opposite side of the airport, which is in a more industrial-type area, uh, airport officials have said that there are reasons, uh, environmental and logistical, that that uh, may not be the best place for it. Uh, so that's another sort of sticking point. Um, the homes that uh, the neighbors uh, live in near where this proposed project is um, sort of you know seem to be getting piled on. They uh, they recently had to deal with PFAS contamination from the airport that came from firefighting foam that was used for decades uh, at the airport, uh, and then after training exercises, dumped uh, on the ground and has since leached into uh, the groundwater. Um, new uh, town water is being run out there um, to to some of those homes, uh, but some of the homes that do not. Uh, come up above the threshold for unsafe levels of PFAS would have to pay to connect to that water. So mm. uh, the neighbors feel that uh, perhaps they're not getting, um, you know, the most satisfaction from the airport. Uh, the airport commission chairman did say that, uh, you know, they're happy to meet um, meet with the neighbors and meet with the town with other town officials and hash some of this out. But he wanted to stress that uh, the PFAS berm is actually the best way to, to deal with the existing PFAS in the soil, that it will be encapsulated in an impermeable uh, envelope uh, and then used in the berm so that when uh, when it rains, it will no longer leach into the surface. But some of the neighbors aren't necessarily, um, you know, ha- happy with that explanation. Uh, th- so there's a meeting on Monday then that that these folks have gotten as a result of speaking out at the select board. Uh, is there a sense that the meeting is really going to uh, have an impact or has the potential to have an impact, I guess? Uh, among the neighbors, not so much necessarily. That's a good point to make. I think they feel that, uh, again, the way this process has gone, they say they're happy that uh, the airport has agreed to the meeting, but um, their understanding is is that the project is scheduled to break ground uh, on Tuesday anyway. Airport officials said, no, that's not necessarily true. That will be determined by what happens at Monday's meeting. But uh, let's suffice it to say there's not a, a, not a ton of trust between, uh, between the neighbors and the airport right now. Hey, Josh, briefly, a longtime member of the select board has announced that she will be seeking re-election. This is Don Holgate. What can you tell us about this? Right. Uh, Don Holgate originally had said that uh, three terms would have been enough for her, that this would have been her last term. Uh, but she did this week take out nomination papers for the May 21st annual town election to seek a fourth term. She said that there are just still a couple of projects that she'd like to see through to the end that are nearing their completion, including plans for the future R Island Home Nursing Home, uh, developing a shovel-ready plan for the relocation of Baxter Road on the east end of the island that's threatened by erosion, uh, as well as sort of the ongoing initiatives uh, to provide more affordable housing and uh, coastal resilience efforts uh, that really have her seeking another term. It's Josh Balling of the Nantucket Inquirer and Mirror. Josh, thanks. Thank you. From job creation to affordable housing, Governor Healy is promising big changes this week after a recent visit with President Biden. Our Morning Edition host, Patrick Flannery, spoke with our Statehouse correspondent, Katie Lannon, about these stories and more. Here's their conversation. Good morning, Katie. Hey, Patrick. Good morning. Governor Healy is expected to file an economic development bill creating jobs as part of this plan, Katie, which involves AI with a focus on climate tech. And she just visited with President Biden in Washington. What do we know about this push thus far and what it means for jobs around Massachusetts? Yeah, I think one of the big focuses we'll see, in addition to what you mentioned, is maintaining the state's position as a leader in the life sciences field, biotechnology, things like that. She says that she wants to help younger, newer entrepreneurs stay here and boost their ideas, help companies develop their manufacturing footprints, and those are the kind of things we're going to be seeing, looking for with the climate technology, the clean energy field as well. That's something the governor has been talking about 
uh, since she was running for office, making Massachusetts a, a leader there, as well as now a, a leader in applied artificial intelligence. She wants to find a way to make that a job creator here in Massachusetts, not a, a job destroyer, find ways to use that emerging technology for the public good. And this is going to be a big bill. It will also reauthorize grants for rural communities, for seaport communities, uh, invest in the creative economy, the tourism sector, uh, which I know is big on the Cape, and especially look ahead to the upcoming 20, 250th anniversary of the American Revolution next year. So there will be lots and lots of pieces of this bill to pour over uh, once it gets fully filed and over the next several months as it works its way through the legislature. Well, at the same time, Katie, state lawmakers have had their fill of steward health care. This is the network that operates nine hospitals in Massachusetts. One of those is in Fall River. The network is out of money. And the House Speaker was so incensed this week, he even floated a potential criminal investigation. Uh, is that possible? Where are we with this? That's a great question. And it's worth noting that the governor also hasn't ruled out some sort of criminal uh, investigation. The attorney general says she can't really you know, talk about what her office might be working on behind the scenes, but that she pledges to hold Stewart accountable the, the House Speaker who was asked about potential uh, criminal charges, he's from Quincy and Stewart closed a hospital there 10 years ago. So that's something that, you know, a community still feels ramifications from years later. The governor has called for Stewart to leave Massachusetts uh, at this point. So this is another situation where we're waiting to see what happens, what it would look like if Stewart leaves Massachusetts. Does that mean closures? Does that mean hospital sales? Does that mean mergers? Uh, and how do patients and workers uh, ultimately get affected by what happens next. All right, Katie, we've got Super Tuesday coming up, and I've got a question about unenrolled or unaffiliated or independent voters in Massachusetts. They get to choose which primary they vote in. So arguments say, let's say I'm registered unaffiliated and tend to vote Democrat, but Nikki Haley is in the race. Any thoughts on whether Democrats might vote Republican on Tuesday in hopes of defeating Trump at the primary level? Well, I mean, that's certainly, you know, with most of the voters in Massachusetts, not having a party affiliation, more than 60% of voters are unenrolled here. That's certainly a possibility. And then Haley campaign is really zeroing in on those Super Tuesday states like Massachusetts that have open primaries. So whether it's Democrats who are you know, technical, technical independents or straight independent voters, that is something the campaign is going to be looking for. The question will be, if it's enough to really make a dent out of the, the base of Trump support uh, that you see among registered Republicans. All right. Last question for you. The state panel had no problem approving Governor Healy's ex-romantic partner as a judge on the Supreme Judicial Court. We're talking about Gabrielle Wolohogin, officially not a conflict of interest during the confirmation process, right? That's right. The, the governor's council, the panel of elected officials that vets judicial nominees, said basically that they didn't see, based on the judge's qualifications, her resume, any reason not to vote for her for a seat on the state's highest court, even though she had this long-term relationship with the governor. They say it's, you know, that she, that relationship has meant she's faced more public scrutiny with other nominees, and it's a, irrelevant to her ability to do her job. Uh, there was one no vote on the confirmation, and that was from a council member from Western Massachusetts who says she still does have unanswered questions about when Judge Wolohogen might need to recuse herself from cases involving the governor's office and the, the process that led someone with such close ties to the governor to be nominated for such an influential role.
That is Katie Lannon from the State House. Katie, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's our Morning Edition host, Patrick Flannery, speaking with State House correspondent Katie Lannon. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm Steve Junker. More students are being homeschooled in New Bedford than anywhere else in the state. Why? What's going on? Colin Hogan of the New Bedford Light joins us to explain what we know. Hi, Colin. Hi, good morning. How about before we get to the why, let's start with what the numbers tell us. How many kids are we talking about? Yeah, in last year's official tally, which is the most recent available, 298 students were approved for homeschooling in New Bedford. And just for context, that's more than double what a city like Fall River, New Bedford's near neighbor, has with 121 homeschooled students. And other similar-sized cities around the state, including Brockton, Lynn, Lawrence, none have half as many as New Bedford's 298. As you mentioned, New Bedford is the leader in the whole state, which is really surprising. It, it outpaced Boston, a city that's over six times bigger, uh, with a school district over four times bigger. So it's a, a really surprising trend, and not least because most homeschooling trends in the state and around the country have been sort of subsiding after the pandemic. But in New Bedford, last year's jump was actually an acceleration, and more students turned to homeschooling last year than they did during the first year of the pandemic. So it's a really surprising trend that we're seeing in New Bedford. So as you investigated this, what are some of the reasons for homeschooling that you heard as you started talking to parents and families? So when people describe their reasons to homeschool, they're varied and they're very personal decisions. Um, a, a broad range of reasons come up in New Bedford. We talked to parents who said that the schools were not doing enough to combat systemic racism. We talked to parents who were conservative Christians and said there's too much teaching about race and gender in in local area schools. And we talked to parents in the area who said it had nothing to do with politics. It was about the availability of special support for children with special needs. Um, And when we talked to administrators, they say the same thing. It's, It's hard to nail down one trend behind this because it's such a personal decision for so many families. Um, In New Bedford, the superintendent, Andrew O'Leary, said that it could also be explained by the housing crisis in New Bedford, that as many students are living in temporary accommodations, perhaps it's easier for them to homeschool than move schools. Uh, So there's a broad range of reasons. There isn't one neat explanation for why this is happening. But when we look at the spectrum of reasons why families often choose to homeschool, a lot of that is coinciding in New Bedford, whether it's having to do with housing, trusting schools, or political extremes. Can you talk about a little bit about what this actually looks like for families um, in the New Bedford school district uh, when they're homeschooling? And do they, what did you find out as you started speaking to them? What does this mean for them? Yeah, so the process of actually going about homeschooling requires you to get permission from the public schools. So no matter what homeschooling looks like for you or your reasons for doing it, you need to submit an educational plan to the public schools and that will get approved. Um, Some of the families we spoke to are educating in their own homes, as as you might expect. Uh, But we also, for this story, visited a homeschooling drop-off program which is on a farm in South Dartmouth. And it was relevant to our story because more than half of their school year enrollment was New Bedford students. 
So we took a visit to this farm to see what it was like at a homeschool drop-off program where a small group of students is engaging in a lot of nature-based activities, uh, less rigorous academics, and more focusing on emotional skills. Um, and, and that in itself gives hint to the wide experiences that people have once they decide to homeschool. Uh, it can be in the comfort of their own home or on a farm with other children. It, it looks really different from case to case. Colin, we've got just about a minute, but I want to ask you about the schools themselves. You talked to the New Bedford School Superintendent. What did he have to say about this this number? So he told us that it's definitely alarming. Um, a spike like this in data is alarming, and he said it probably represents a breakdown in trust between New Bedford parents and the school district, and that they'd love to work to understand where that breakdown in trust is originating. Uh, it's also worth noting that when students leave the district, some of the funding that is allocated to the public schools leaves as well. So this is not just an issue of trust for the schools, but it's also starting to affect their bottom line when more than double the rate of homeschooling is happening in New Bedford compared to the state itself. Uh, so the, the district is definitely looking into this and looking to see if they can uncover some solutions. Mm. Colin Hogan of the New Bedford Light, where you can find the story. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. I want to thank all my guests. We heard from CAI's Jeanette Barnes and Eve Zukoff. Spoke with Thomas Humphrey at the Vineyard Gazette, Tim Wood at the Cape Cod Chronicle, Sam Pollock at the Provincetown Independent, and Josh Balling at the Nantucket Inquirer and Mirror. We heard from CAI's Patrick Flannery with Statehouse reporter Katie Lannon and Colin Hogan there from the New Bedford Light. Big thank you to Dan Treidel for engineering the program. No AI involved, purely a human effort. Thanks, Dan. That's it for today. I'm off for a couple of weeks. Don't forget about me. In Woods Hole, I'm Steve Junker. Thank you for listening.